Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Dampier, thanks for tuning in. As someone who likes to consider themselves a realist, logical, self-aware, curious, I do on occasion ask myself if we as humans are significant. Or really, are we just cosmic dust floating on a rock in a never-ending abyss? And now logic would say we are. We are extremely insignificant. We are a flash in the pan of the universe. And our guest this week presents a different story. Now to prime you, during this interview, I wrote down what will go down as one of my favorite quotes in the history of Smart People podcast thus far, which is this. Our significance lies in our ability to question our significance and to try to understand the place that gives us life. Maybe we are not so small. What if we are the only thing in the universe that can question our significance? Think about that. And if that's the case, we need to change the way we live. We can put ourselves at the center of the universe until proven otherwise, and then make decisions based on the gravity of that situation. So buckle up. You're in for a good one. This week on the show, we are talking to Marcelo Gleiser, who is the first Latin American winner of the Templeton Prize, a theoretical physicist and a professor of natural philosophy, physics, and astronomy at Dartmouth College. He is a fellow of the American Physical Society, a recipient of the Presidential Faculty Fellows Award, and the author of five books. His newest book, the one we're discussing, is called The Dawn of a Mindful Universe. A Manifesto for Humanity's Future. I think we should be having more conversations like this. Hence the reason we're having them on this podcast. 
if you agree, the best thing you can do is share it so that more people hear it and we keep doing it. Challenge yourself to tell one person about this podcast today, if you should so choose. Let's get into it. Our conversation with Marcelo Gleiser about his new book, The Dawn of a Mindful Universe, a manifesto for humanity's future. Enjoy. I couldn't help but notice, and those listening will notice, that in the field you're in, we also just interviewed uh, a colleague of yours, uh, Avi Loeb, and we talked about his book, Interstellar and Aliens. And I just mentioned that to you. I didn't know you all would know each other, but you do. Is, is it just everybody who deals with space kind of has to know each other to some extent? Oh, uh, a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of a smallish community, you know, astrophysics um, and I've known Avi for decades now, you know, and uh, he's always been uh, a guy that has very, um, a very open mind, you know, and it's not just the guy that calculates and thinks about data, but he's also thinking about deeper implications, which is in a sense what I do too. So we've always hit it off that way. You know, his perspective is, of course, we're not alone. There are definitely extraterrestrials and we will find them. And, and that is where we need to think of in terms of humanity's future. It looks like your beliefs are almost exactly opposite, which is we don't need to look outwardly. We need to focus inwardly with ourselves, with our actions and where we are on this planet. Do you feel that your beliefs and Avi's are almost diametrically opposed? Yes. And I think you, you said it very clearly. Um, the question of life, right? First of all, let's talk a little bit about life, because I think that is an absolutely fascinating conversation, just that one. I mean, people take it for granted, right, that we live in this planet, that we are alive, that we can think, that we can ask big questions about existence, that we can construct a scientific narrative that tries to make sense of who we are and where we exist. But the point is that we shouldn't be taking any of this for granted. And, and my book really is an exploration of, okay, how did we get here? How come we became suddenly the owners of the natural world and the planetary you know, bosses uh, from being descendants of a bacterium that existed three billion years ago? Wow. How come we created this story of who we are? And is this the right story to be thinking about? And so behind my point of view and Avi's point of view, really there is a conflict of worldviews. And the idea is the following. And I go over the whole thing in the dawn of a mindful universe. So it's all there, but very basically the idea is this, right? So from the beginning... Let's go back a long time ago before agrarian civilization. So we've been around, we meaning Homo sapiens, our species, we've been around for about 300,000 years, give or take. Of these 300,000 years, 95% of the time, 95% of the time, we're just a, a bands of nomads, you know, like hunter-gathering uh, societies, small communities, moving around, getting what they could, hunting to survive. And from those cultures, you know, came this connection with the natural world that was magical. The world was a mystery, and because of that, 
the way these people created a relationship with this mystery of existence was by saying, you know, there are gods everywhere, there are spirits everywhere, the mountains, the rivers, the forest, the volcano, the winds, the storms, all of that is controlled by forces beyond our understanding. And these people had a very deep respect to the land that they thought was sacred. And this is precisely the same kind of attitude that, and really worldview, that indigenous cultures across the planet have had for thousands of years. So they have kept this understanding that we live in a sacred place and that we have to respect it and coexist with it, not being above it. But then what happened? Well, 10,000 years ago, agrarian civilization started. People started to plant and coalesce into bigger urban centers. And because of that, you needed to have more control over people because communities were growing. You needed more discipline. You needed leaders that were more powerful. And with that came the understanding that nature could be dangerous and was pushed outside the city walls, right? So the city walls was where we existed, not the rest of the world. And then what happened was that we started to lose connection with the natural world. It became more and more objectified, meaning it's something that we use for our own benefit. So that became the way we dealt with nature. And of course, with the industrial, so fast forward to about 150 years ago, industrial civilization took that to the limit and said, we own the planet. We can eat its resources and consume everything in order to sustain our project of civilization, our growth, you know, progress. Progress is about moving forward without any kind of thinking or reflection about what is the environmental cost of what we're doing. And it worked beautifully. And we did. Look at this. You know, 10, 10 years ago, or maybe 15 years ago, I wouldn't be talking, sitting down with you in this amazing thing. You know, I don't know where you are. I'm in northern New Hampshire. You know, I'm, I'm in, D- in outside of D.C. So, yeah. Out of D.C. And that's just wonderful and spectacular and should be celebrated, everything. But there's the other side of this conversation, which is... Copernicus, and that's where the space connection comes in, Copernicus told us that the Earth is just a planet going around the sun, which it absolutely is. (laughs) The Earth is just a planet going around the sun from an astronomical perspective. From that Copernicanism, this moving of us and our planet from the center of everything, which was the way people thought about, to Copernicanism, Earth lost lost its currency as a special place. It became just another world. And the upshot of all that is that the way people see science is, man, you know, these guys, the more we understand about the universe, the less important we become. You know, Earth was moved from the center. Then the sun was the center, but the sun is just another star. And... There are billions of stars in our galaxy. And the galaxy, as we move on to the 20th century, hey, it's not just this galaxy. There are 
hundreds of billions of galaxies out there and the universe is expanding. And even the stuff we are made of, the atoms that we're made of is not important because really the universe is controlled by these things called dark matter and dark energy. And so we are basically nothing, right? We're not important. And we trivialized our planet and the very fundamental fact that life exists here. So back to Avi, the idea is sometimes even called the principle of mediocrity in astronomy, which is the notion that our planet is not important. And because of that, there'll be many other Earths out there or Earth-like worlds because there are so many. Come on, just our galaxy has over a trillion. One trillion is a one with 12 zeros planets. And then we have the moons. You know, Jupiter has more than 70 moons. I mean, it's a lot of place, right? A lot of worlds. Each of these worlds is different. <clears throat> and so you say, hey, there are all these planets, all these Earths. Why should our planet be so special? That should be life. So Copernicanism was extrapolated to go from a statement about astronomy. Yes, we move around the sun, for sure to a statement about the mediocrity of Earth as a planet in this big scheme of things, meaning there'll be many other Earths out there, and because of that, there'll be other worlds with life. That is, and because of that, you know, there'll be civilizations, and civilizations will travel and may visit us. That's the Avi Loeb, and not just him, but a lot of other people's perspective. So my perspective is exactly the opposite. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money, and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com slash smart. I kind of find myself in the middle, which is I am fascinated every day by this planet. And a lot of my life has been dedicated to uh, making it a better place. Yet, I also believe we are insignificant. Is it possible to hold both mindsets or belief systems simultaneously? And if so, is there a flaw with that? Yes. Great. Tell me about it. I, I, I want it to be. I want to feel more important. Trust me. Yeah. So the issue with that is that you cannot think 
of Earth-like as only having a planet that is going around a star like the Sun with the same sort of radius and mass, which are astronomical properties. What really defines our planet is not just those numbers, but is the fact that it has a vibrant biosphere. It is a living world. And then you go, and why is that important? Well, because just take a look around, you know, look at the other planets in our solar system. They're all dead worlds. I mean, if, if there is anything on Mars, it doesn't look like there is. And if there was, maybe billions of years ago, there's no remains of anything that really relevant happened there. All the moons of our solar system where we kind of think there could be something, they'll be so cold and so different that certainly there is no complex life anywhere. And nowadays, there's this whole field of astrobiology, which is wonderful, which is the study of life in the universe. And we have now mapped over five, almost 6,000 other worlds, other planets, moving around other stars, which is really spectacular, right? This is something from the last 15 years or so. And because before we say, yeah, you know, there may be other planets out there, but in science, maybe is not certainty. You know, say it's a hypothesis. Now we know it's true. And that is just mind-boggling, right? Because if you think of our galaxy, where the sun is, you say you have 200 billion other stars out there. And, and we can now say with confidence that the vast majority of these stars will have planets moving around it. Okay. So that's where the trillions of worlds come from. And then when you do the statistics of what we have learned, you find out that about 3.6% can be Earth-like. That's what astronomers say, which is a lot. You know, I mean, if, you know, because you're just dividing by, by 100. So if you have a trillion, <laughs> dividing by 100 is a hell of a lot of places, you know. And so you say, yeah, you can have billions of other Earth-like planets in our galaxy alone, which is true. The mistake, and this is a fundamental mistake, is to go from there to, therefore, there will be life in these worlds, and therefore, there will be intelligent life in these worlds, and therefore, look at all these jumps, and therefore, this intelligent life will construct civilizations which are technologically based, and therefore, they will have the interest, psychologically speaking, of being explorers, and therefore they're going to travel all over the place, including around here. So, the point is, we have zero idea about the origin of life, you know. And we do not understand how three and a half billion years ago, maybe a little more, some primordial molecules in this planet got together and became a living thing. And what does that mean by a living thing? It means an agglomeration of chemicals that is able to get energy from the environment, eat, metabolize stuff, and reproduce. We do not know how that happened. And so the jump from... Can I have, you know, amino acids in other worlds, you know, the basics of proteins and stuff like that. Just start the pro Sure, of course we can, and we do. But that tells us nothing about the existence of life in other worlds.
You said something there. I want to double check. You mentioned this new study of life on other planets, something biology, astrobiology, is that what you call it? Biology, yeah. And I think you said we were, we've been able to map 6,000 other planets. Is that right? Yeah. And I'm assuming that means none of them obviously have this type of atmosphere, life, all that, right? Well, okay. Good question. So of all these worlds that we have seen, um, to ask about the composition of one thing is to say how heavy the, the, the world is and how big it is that we can tell you because the way we do this is that whenever a planet goes in front of a star, it kind of obscures just a tiny little bit of the light of that star. Okay. It's called transit. And, and because of that, we can see, you know, so if you have the light curve of the star is bright, 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 then it gets dimmer and then it gets bright again. And we can do this, which is really spectacular. And, and it will tell us how big the world is, how far it is, how, how, what kind of the composition, if it's rocky, if it's gas-like, like Jupiter and stuff. To talk about the atmosphere, what, and we are doing this now, beginning to do that with the James Webb Space Telescope. What happens is, so the star is shining light. The, the planet goes right in front of it. It obscures some. So what, it, what I mean by obscuring is that some of the planet's atmosphere, if it has atmosphere, will absorb some of the starlight. Okay, makes sense. So when you compare the before and during, they're going to say, look at that. Before uh, the planet was in front of the star, you could see this light, and the light tells you about the chemical composition of things because chemical elements glow in different colors, so to speak. And when the planet goes in front of it, it eats some of those light waves, those wavelengths, which tells you what is the composition of the atmosphere of that planet. Bingo! Because then, okay, okay, does it have water? Does it have methane? Does it have ozone? And, and, and by doing that, you can say that planet in, seems to be a planet that could be alive, meaning the atmosphere reflects the biological activity in the world. Okay. So an alien that would look at us would if the alien knows what is what it is doing, I guess, uh, would be able to tell that this is a planet that is a living world. Okay. We haven't gotten there yet with the other worlds. That's so, what I was wondering. Yeah. So, and the reason is because you mentioned the current science says that about 3.6% of um, the trillions could have life. But if we are O for 6,000, wouldn't, wouldn't that statistically, you would start to assume if it's 3.6, then for every hundred, we see 3.6 of them should have life or something, right? No, no, not life. The conditions for life? Not even, just earth-like, meaning have the same Uh radius and the same mass of the earth. Oh, okay. Okay. That's like the basic, basic first step. Sure. Process. Okay. And of course, I'm always talking about life as we know it, meaning carbon based, water based. I have, you know, if you start speculating about aliens that live in electromagnetic fields that vibrate in a certain frequency, that that's great. But that is something that we can't say anything scientific about. So all I'm saying is that there are about 3.6% of the planets that exist look from an astronomical perspective like the Earth. 
nothing about the atmosphere and certainly nothing about life. Okay. And that's the problem. Okay. And that's the problem. All right. We can move past that because because it, it makes sense. I just wanted to understand it. So I have to ask you, as we get back into your book, and I'm starting to understand your ethos and, and, and where it comes from. In doing some research, I was looking just at the titles of previous articles you've written. Yeah. And obviously, I'm going to talk about your your bio in the intro, but I mean, I can't even pronounce most of the words in the titles of the articles you've written. So I, I want to know what got you from those types of articles to this book, just so those listening understand. Like, I'll just pick one. Predicting atomic decay rates using an informational entropic approach or cosmic metaphysics being being versus becoming in cosmology and astrophysics. Like this is deep scientific stuff. How do you get from writing that to, to this book? And why did you decide to make that transition? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Thank you for asking it. So, you know, I've been uh, in public understanding of science for a very long time, right? I mean, this is my sixth book in English, I think. And the country I come from, Brazil, I mean, I'm, I've published many, many more. So this has been part of my, my, my whole career because I think that science is too beautiful to be left only to the, for the scientists. I think that we have a duty to inform the public about what it is that we're doing because at the end of the world, you know, um, we got to remember that we are being, our research is being paid by the taxpayers and they have, they have to know why it is worthwhile to spend money, you know, financing this kind of stuff. So that is one. And the most important one really is that science is part of our culture. It's how we look at ourselves and it contributes to that vision. It's not the only way. You know, I'm not going to say that science has answers to everything because it does not. We, quite the opposite. You know, that's uh, you have to look at philosophy, you have to look at spirituality, religion, you have to look at arts to actually really construct a picture of what it means to be human. But science does have a big, big part on this equation, more and more, you know. And so to humanize science, I think it's essential. And, and if you do look at my books, there is kind of like a transition from the more mostly scientific stuff, even though my first book is called um, The Dense Universe from Creation Meets the Big Bang, I always have had an interest and in, and in worry really in relating science to religion, to philosophy, to history, to show that it is a process of discovery, really, you know, that there is no final answers to anything, that we're always learning something new about ourselves, and that these questionings are as old as the first human or before human looked up at the sky, saw those blinking stars and says, what the heck is that? And how come they don't fall on us? You know, and why can't I grab it? Why is it so far away? And what, I mean, those are questions that basically nurtured the whole scientific approach, you know, because that's what we're doing. We're trying to answer these same, very same questions these folks have asked thousands and thousands of years ago. So why this book in particular, right? Because this book is different from my other books, not just because it connects philosophy and religion because the others did too, but because this is, the subtitle is a manifesto for humanity's future. Right. And when you write a manifesto, and actually I went back and I read the Communist Manifesto when I was a teenager, 
I went back to read it because I wanted to phrase and construct the end of the book as a manifesto, kind of following the same example of Marx and Engels. You know, so how do you how do you write a manifesto? After, yeah. Right? So you come up with a very concise and, and strong mindset and point of view. And then you 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 suggest action items to like, okay, what it is that you're gonna do in order to implement your change. So in the case of the Communist Manifesto, let's destroy the bourgeoisie and you know, and, and in my case it's not that, it's like let's rethink our relationship to the planet and to each other and to all life in this planet. Because the framing of this book is really about the way we are functioning in this planet right now. It's not sustainable. We need to rethink our relationship with the world. You know, we've we've sustained ourselves. I mean, think about this. We've sustained ourselves for the last 200 years by essentially eating the entrails of the planet. Like we, the oil, the gas, the coal, all of this stuff is coming from underground. In fact, leftover stuff from animals that lived here millions of years ago to sustain the fuel of our civilization comes from these fossils, you know, fossil fuels. That's why they're called that, right? And that has been great, but it also came with a huge environmental cost. And now we're not, we are in a transitional time where we are beginning to realize that. More people should be realizing that, but that's part of the work. And we are realizing that, hey, look at that. The skies are giving us all this energy. Look, the sun shines, produces a huge amount of energy. Let's use that. The winds blow because the atmosphere is always in motion. Let's use that. And so instead of eating the planet, let's just open our antennas and our fans, you know, to absorb the energy that is already out there in the skies, right? So that's the transition. But with that transition, you necessitate a different way of thinking about who we are. And so what I try to do in the book is to construct a narrative of what it means to be human. And I know it's an ambitious project, but construct a narrative of what it means to be human, moving away from the we are above nature to we are very fundamentally part of nature and we are completely codependent with the life collective that we share this planet with. We can raise down mountains and create channels and and do all sorts of incredible engineering things that we do, but we cannot stop earthquakes, we cannot stop volcanic eruptions, we cannot stop pandemics. They will happen. We can slow down or we can accelerate their end, but we are not above above the, the natural. We are very much part of it. The air that you breathe, every time you breathe, you are taking in the world. So if the world is sick, you're going to get sick. Maybe for me, it's less about feeling above nature, but more about feeling part of it, just recognizing they are us and the world and the planet and all of those things are less separable than we have come to believe. Yeah, but most people do believe it because say, hey, you know, science can solve all the problems. You know, we are overpopulated, right? I mean, we have, I always like to say this because it's such a 
mind-blowing number. A hundred years ago, there were two billion humans in this planet. Now there are eight. We quadrupled the population of the planet in a hundred years, which is why? Well, because of technology, medicine, food, but you know, all these people have to eat, they need energy, they need fuel. How are we going to do this? Right? How are we going to do this in a planet that is big but it's finite in its resources and size? We have to rethink how we connect to the world. And so, and clearly, you know, you know, this whole rhetoric of dystopian futures, you know, the the end of the world is coming, global warming and political strife. It's not working. It's not making people say eat a little less meat or use less water or whatever it is or take public transportation. So because of, I guess, my personality and the way I like to think, um, I always think in terms of mythic dimensions, so to speak, because the questions I deal with are always kind of like origin of the universe, origin of life, origin of mind and consciousness. You know, I said we need a new myth, you know, a new mythic narrative of the human. And so that's where the whole space thing comes back to, because what I argue in the book is that we humans are much more important than we think we are because we are the animals in this planet that are able to tell a story, which is the story of the universe, the story that we came from. We are more than anything else. We are the animals that can tell stories. And the stories that we have been telling are amazing, but they're also very destructive. And certainly the story that we've been telling that we can do to the planet as we please is a bad story. So the real story is that if you connect ourselves to the universe in a much deeper sense, and here we go. What are we made of? Well, you know, calcium in the bones and iron in your blood. And where does all this stuff come from? Well, it came from exploding stars that exploded billions of years ago. So, Chris, you know, you may be a young guy, you know, but this is the Chris that is this assemblage of atoms that exist right now. But the very stuff that makes you be Chris is billions of years old. So we are profoundly connected to the cosmic history. We really are, in a not over-romanticizing, we really are how the universe tells its story. Are there other aliens there telling stories? Maybe, but we have no idea. We haven't heard from them. And the human story is the only human story in the universe because Earth and every planet is different. There is no two Earths out there. There are no two Earths out there. No planets evolve in the same way. So that means that the life that possibly another world may have will for sure be different from the life here. I love how you call it the dawn of a mindful universe. Is the idea that we need to now um, essentially be more thoughtful about the way we coexist on this planet as opposed to think of the planet as something that just serves us, that gives us what we need, that sustains our life, and that provides our fuel for growth? Yeah, that's awesome. So mindfulness is kind of an overused word. So you've got to be careful about the meanings. And, and there are really two meanings. One of them is yes. 
you know, hopefully people are becoming, will become and are becoming, I think, more mindful of the way we relate to the planet, its resource, and, and also animal rights. I mean, the way we treat animals and farms are, is just horrendous, is murderous, genocide, right? And um, to a huge extent, I mean, anyways, let's not go there unless you want to. But, well, we um, might. <laughs> I'm going to put a note if we've got that. <laughs> and, and, but the other mindfulness here is really the fact that the universe only begun to tell its story because we gain a voice. We as a species gain a voice. So before we existed, there was no voice. There was just animals moving around and particles interacting by forces, animals in this planet. But most of the universe has been a sequence of particles interacting by gravity, electromagnetism, and the other nuclear forces, creating connections, but not being alive and most certainly not telling stories, not searching for existential meaning, not trying to understand what is the reason that I'm here? Why am I waking up every morning? What is my sense of purpose? And suddenly when we came around and maybe other hominins you know, before us did that too, but we have no idea. So we focus on the human story. you know, And the human story is the first story that we know of that tries to make sense of existence. And so the universe gains a mind through us. That's the dawn of the mindful universe. Okay, my head just exploded. This, this is crazy. Okay, so I just wrote down my interpretation of what you were saying to an extent. And I wanna think through it live with you. Our significance is our ability to question our significance and try to understand the place that gives us life. Is there some cosmic amazement at the fact that if it weren't for us, as far as we know, then the universe to an extent wouldn't exist, right? Because there's nobody there to observe it. There's nobody there to consciously, right? Prefrontal cortex, question it. I don't know. Rip that to shreds, because if that's true, I got to think about this for like a week. <laughs> yeah, no, that is right on. So, you know, my dog is a genius and whales are super smart, but they are not questioning the meaning of existence and trying to create a story that will give them meaning. You know, they will do their thing and they may, what do we know of what's going on in the brains of whales? But we do not have any evidence, you know, concretely that they are creating narratives of existence. So the point is that we are different. And this is not about human exceptionalism, which is a big problem. This is absolutely not about that. So I want to make that very clear. But it is about the exceptionalism of life. So I start, I start with saying we are part of the life collective, but there is a difference, which is we are part of the life collective, but we are the ones that know it. And knowing it, knowing that we are part of this, knowing that we are capable of creating experiments to search for the existence of alien visitations on our planet, changes everything. Because now... We are using our existence to tell a story of who we are. And, you know, and, and the bottom story here is that we have no idea. And the mystery of existence is the biggest of all mysteries. And 
we try to deal with it in all possible ways, right? Through science, art, etc. And I came to this realization that, wait a second, the Earth is the only Earth in this universe. There may be other planets out there, like, but they will not be this planet. And the life here is unique. So that means that we are, and I... Scientists don't like to say things with certainty, but I am going to say this with certainty. We are the only humans in the universe. Period. There may be other aliens that have left-right symmetry, they have ears and eyes, sure, but we are the only humans. And the story that we tell about the universe is the human story. And it's important because it's our voice. And we get to choose what that story, essentially what it sounds like. How does it start? How does What's the middle? What's the end? And at this moment, I think anybody listening to this show will be of similar belief that so far, or at least recently, the chapter we're on right now, it's not great. It's not great in terms of its relation to the planet. Yeah. I mean, right? And, and so what are we going to do? Are we just going to keep waking up every day and pretending nothing's happening? Or are we going to actually do a little bit of self-analysis and realize that the choices that we make represent the way we think. Ah, that's the hard part, right? Because you say, what am I going to eat today? Or how am I going to use energy? Or how am I going to raise my kids? And um, how am I going to relate to other animals and to other people? All of these choices that we make every day tell a lot of the kind of person you are. And I think... Nowadays, with this big global warming thing happening on our heads, it's so easy to be pessimistic, right? But being pessimistic, you know, being Brazilian, I, I like to use soccer analogies, right? So <laughs> being pessimistic is like you go into the field to start a game, but you don't even touch the ball. So you don't even play the game. So like, I lost. Who gives a damn, right? And who is going to solve a problem that way? And what people do... And, you know, I've been guilty of that a lot of my life, but I think I'm better now, is we have this powerful, powerful cognitive dissonance with the way we are, thinking that the way we are does not affect the world. And the point is that the way we are as individuals, not just as governments, corporations, etc., affect the world. Because the little things add up. And... The little choices that you make as a person, as a member of a family, as a member of a community, of a church, whatever you do, of a school teacher, those choices, the way you talk about life, the way you talk about the planet, the way you conduct yourself in the world, they resonate with other people. They can make people change. They may influence. They may, they may inspire. I think that's the better word. Inspire people to join in. So I'm a real, as opposed to Harari and a bunch of other guys that think, you know, the end is near, so forget it. Um, I do believe in the power of the human kind, kind, to, to change. In researching your book, I had this thought that what is causing these problems is progress. We've gone from 2 billion to 8 billion people. We, you know, have more affluence than compared to other times in history, et cetera, et cetera. And if progress is hardwired into our evolution, 
it's a it's a species component as most species I think are. But here's the difference. If progress is hardwired into our evolution, but so is critical thought, then we can't use that as an excuse any longer. Mm-hmm. Right. So what if you rephrase that evolution tells us about progress to evolution tells us about survivability? It's really about surviving mm. and thriving. And we and are moving in a direction where that becomes less plausible or possible. Exactly. So if we maintain the greed towards progress that we have maintained so far, that becomes unsustain not yeah, unsustainable really with the idea of survival of our own species. So we are reaching a point where the fundamental lesson of evolution, which is living things want to stay alive, right. where we're getting into the let's self-cannibalize, you know, and and who gives a shit, right? Let's do it and 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 let's go on. I mean, I I had a conversation with this fellow another you know a month ago in a party that was I was horrified because he said, Yeah, I understand all of this, but since we have all this natural gas and all this, why don't you just burn it real hard, real quickly now so that we don't have it anymore and we have to move on to the other thing? And that is exactly wrong. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> so insane, but... <laughs> insane, but you know what? A lot of people think that way. And because the idea of, hey, there is money in this, you know, and and it's so hard for us to promote this kind of mindset change because it's really about perhaps less is more because you start to think about less for you and more for everyone and you start to move from the this is my tribe and I have to take care only of my tribe to hey there is one tribe which is a human tribe and that one we are all codependent on this and <clears throat> I always being naive and romantic I always hope that I always hope that the pandemic would um have taught us that, you know, that we are completely codependent on each other. It doesn't matter what your job is. We need you because without you, we'd be screwed, essentially, right? I mean, it's that simple. And the problem is that people seem to be forgetting that real quickly. You know, know, the first respondents, you know, the guys that were bringing the food from the farms to the market. Society collapses if it doesn't eat for three days. But we did eat. We didn't have toilet paper and people panicked on that one, but we did eat. And, and, and because of that, we survived, but it is that fragile. So our balance, our superiority over the natural world is an illusion. And we have to reframe this conversation, you know. And as you talk about that in the pandemic, which I think highlighted a lot of this human nature, the, the benefits and the negatives, it made me realize most of the time, When I'm reliant on other people, I find it to be a positive experience, meaning like we just had a baby. The amount of people that came together to make that happen and make it happen in a really caring, impressive environment, right? It's a lot. Now, I don't know these people as far as I can throw them. In fact, we interviewed um, Harari a long time ago, and one of the things that stuck out to me was his assertion that one of the reasons humans have are the top of the food chain is our ability to trust without knowing 
like we 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 can trust the pilot even though we don't know them. What's fascinating to me is sometimes the more we get to know somebody, uh, we will distrust them or distance ourselves from them, despite the fact that it's only because of some philosophical differences. But we'll go let them deliver our baby or fly our plane. We'll be thankful for it. And so I think to some extent what you're advocating for is to recognize we can have some of those discussions and some of those differences but recognize exactly. that at the end of the day, we're all still <laughs> and part we, of the same tribe. And we should be curious about each other, even if we don't agree with everything we say. But I, th- I love that that you brought this up. That you know, you don't know who your pilot of the airplane voted for, but you know, you're trusting your life. Uh, you know, and I think that's just remarkable, and that's so true. You know, and so I call this the human hive. We have jobs that we depend on each other, and and. And why not celebrate that and, and get over, you know, some of the bigotry that is so rampant right now. And so the idea of celebrate, I call this the big principle in the book is called biocentrism. You know, the idea that we put life center, center stage, you know, and so we, it's not a Copernicanism, it's a post-Copernicanism idea that life is what matters. And that's what kind of, once you start to look at the world from that perspective, that life is what matters, you start to relate to other people, you start to relate to other animals and to this living planet in a very different way. And the corollary of this is that a living world, just like the indigenous cultures have been telling us forever, is a sacred world. And man, you go to Mercury, you go to Venus. Venus is a complete disaster. You know, it's beautiful to look at a sunset or sunrise, but it's like <laughs> total hell, you know, 500 degrees, glowing rocks and the smell of rotten eggs and sulfuric acid rain. I mean, you don't want to go there, right? And Mercury is totally dead and Mars is a frigid desert. And the other planets you can't even stand on because they're made of gas. I mean, only their core is solid. So you're like, wow, what a planet, man, what a planet. And and why aren't we all celebrating this? You know, that that and so maybe if there is an awakening that should be happening in the 21st century, is this one. The awakening for this special place we have and gratitude for the world that allows us to be who we are. For a world that allows us to be who we are. I like that. And you mentioned the what you call it, the hive. What the if, human hive. The human hive. It's funny because in thinking about your book, so I have a beehive. We just got honey from it for the first time. It's a, a year and a half we've had it. And I am amazed by those animals. I, I mean, they are astounding, some of the things they do. But they ruthlessly at times will do what they need to to sustain the hive, to keep it in a perfect harmony, if you will. In fact, I mean, when a bee stings you, it dies. We all know that. And I've watched them sting me. So I just, I love that idea. I had thought about that before even knowing what, that you refer to it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's collective intelligence, you know. And, uh, and we have been fragmenting ourselves for way too long. And think about the power that we would have, you know, if we thought more as a hive than as a little tribe. You mentioned at the beginning, you wrote this intentionally 
as a manifesto and part of a manifesto has what actions can we take? We've all heard of climate change at this point, right? We've also heard what we can do. We need to recycle. We need to do all these things from a less, I want to say a less benign perspective, right? Somebody with your perspective of the universe, what are the things you recommend to people either from an action item perspective, but also from a mindset shift from a cosmic viewpoint that we can do? That's, yeah. So they're all, I mean, in the list, there is a list of things. They're the obvious ones, right? You know, and, um, you know, the less meat, the this and that. Um, but to me, what's really essential, and I try to make this very clear and, and kind of maybe even too harsh at the end of the book, we have to reconnect with the natural world and in ways that we have not, you know, I mean, because as we, segregate ourselves into big cities we basically what is a big city well it's basically a place where you push nature out but you know macroeconomically speaking you know a city is where nature isn't uh meaning the 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 forests they're all outside and so yeah you build a park in the middle of the city and you know and maybe if you live in front of a river or if you live in front of an ocean, you can go for a walk or a run and stuff like that. But the concrete jungle that we built is not the green jungle, it's the concrete jungle. And it has been done to push nature out of boundaries because since the agrarian civilization, connecting back to the beginning of our conversation, nature was seen both as plentiful but also as a threat. You, know, you, had, you had the animals, you had this and that, that you had to be careful with. And so we have progressively forgotten that we are just part of this natural world because we have lived for so long away from it. You know, and so what can people do? I mean, I was in Italy this summer and I went to a, an astronomical viewing night, you know, in Tuscany with some friends. And because they knew I was an astrophysicist, they were all excited. It was an it was was a lot of fun. But in talking to these people, who are just awesome people, all of them, many of them told me, "Wow, I had forgotten what the sky looked like. I hardly ever look at a star or observe a sunset, and I don't even know a difference between a star and a planet." And I don't ever take walks in woods or go on a trail run or walk or hike. And we have really, really moved away from this world. And of course, we don't think about nature when we push it away. We don't see it. You know, you see what? Oh, you see the mosquitoes, which are annoying, or the cockroaches or the rats in New York. You don't see the good stuff. You just see this kind of stuff. But the point is that we are very much in need of this reconnection. And there are lots of groups doing that. You know, there is this more like, I wouldn't call it new age because it's true, like forest baiting, the notion that you go into a forest and you monitor your physiological rhythms and your hormonal levels and your heartbeats and everything goes to a better place. Absolutely. So there is good in being in the world because that's where we come from, you know. I love it. Marcelo, I, you know, I love that you have decided to take some of your uh, knowledge and your understanding and your perspective and apply it to 
this type of message. And so the book is The Dawn of a Mindful Universe, A Manifesto for Humanity's Future. Marcel, I really appreciate you being on. For those that are interested in this, you know, obviously link to the book. Anywhere else that they can go find more about you or anywhere else you point them. Yeah, just MarceloGleiser.com and Instagram and YouTube. I have a ton of followers all over because I'm always connecting, you know, bringing science and other things to the general public and because I love doing it. A thank you to this week's guest, Marcelo Gleiser. As always, the episode was hosted by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Marcelo's book, The Dawn of a Mindful Universe, A Manifesto for Humanity's Future, can be found wherever books are sold. And now the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, you can always sign up for the newsletter over at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up And we'll see you all next episode.